No, we're going to do this one standing up the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> there will be a dance halfway through it as well. Okay, good morning. All right, so while the pastor, his family, and some of our church members are out basking in the sun and drinking fruity drinks with umbrellas in it, he asked me if I would uh, continue us in our walk through the Minor Prophets. And I was happy to accept this challenge. Through the last several weeks, we have been going through all the Minor Prophets, and we've titled it, Come Back to Me. And by minor, we mean the smaller books of the Bible, not the uh, less important ones. And I think he gave me the best one to go over today, and we're going to be in Haggai. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump on over to the book of Haggai. Um, it's between Zephaniah and Zechariah, or luckily enough, our Bibles come with a table of contents. So there's no shame in using that. So the book of Haggai is only two chapters long, but it has a ton of information in it. Um, now, understand like the other previous weeks, we aren't going to be diving into every you know, small detail and every nuance but we are going to get a broad kind of aerial scope of the book. You know, this is very similar to how I'm teaching U.S. history at my school. It's a survey course, right? We're going to hit all the major points and move on to the next unit. So this is right up my alley. So the main theme of the book of Haggai is that the restoration of the Lord's house by the people of God will mediate God's presence. Haggai motivates the leaders, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the people of God to consider their current economic and spiritual circumstances and to renew their efforts to complete the work of the temple restoration. So they've got to rebuild the temple. The temple's been destroyed. They've been called upon God, the Lord of hosts, to restore the temple. The name of the book is named after the prophet Haggai, whose name means festive or festival. Uh, many believe the name was given because Haggai was born or on or near a festival day. Uh, some suggest that his name is related to the celebration of the prophetic hope concerning uh, the temple and the glory of God. While the first suggestion is probably more probable, uh, it is interesting to note that Haggai's uh, ministry began on a new moon festival day, and the book records the festivities which will be enjoyed when Yahweh rules the day of the Lord. Haggai is the most precisely dated book of the Bible, with the dates of each sermon given to the exact day. The accuracy with which he records these days established, um, or excuse me, suggests that he might have kept a journal. So he probably kept a journal. This is where we get the book of Haggai. The beginning of Darius's reign is well established at 522 BC. So each of the four messages in Haggai take place in the second year of his reign, which would be 520 BC. Um, but we're going to go ahead and jump in it. Uh, if you're able and willing, we're going to read Haggai 1. So if you're able and willing, please stand as we read God's word. It's 15 verses, so let us make sure we stay focused on the reading of God's word while we go through this. And it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the sons of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. 
And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withdrew the dew, or withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, I think, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we get to spend in your word, Lord. Let your truth be revealed. Let you be glorified, Lord. Uh, let minds and hearts be open to you, Lord. And just thank you. Thank you for everyone that's in this uh, building, Lord. Continue to bless us. Continue to use us. Uh, mold us into what you want us to be, Father. And we love you and we need you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Mike always told me if you don't know how to pronounce it exactly, just kind of fake it. Um, so that's kind of what I went with. So <laughs> it sounded good. All right. So God used Haggai to get the leaders and the people to once again focus on the work of God. Through the leading of God, the ministry of the prophets, the decree and the funding of Darius, the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, the rebuilding of the temple was resumed and completed in 516 B.C. That's exactly 70 years after its destruction. Now, while preparing for this sermon, I came across some pretty interesting information about the 70 years. Does anyone know the significance of being in captivity for 70 years? No? Okay. If you remember, as part of the law, God told the people to let the land rest every seventh year. Did they do that? No. They were in the land 490 years and never observed the Sabbath year for the land. How many Sabbath years did they miss? Seventy. Right? So God made up for it by taking all the Sabbath years at one time. You would almost think that God was in control. The point is this. We can do it the easy way or we can do it the hard way. But either way, God is going to get his way. Amen? That's why it is important for us to have our priorities right and put obedience to God first. Which leads me to my first of three truths. Can't break away from that tradition. And that is the book of Haggai emphasizes our need to stay obedient to God. Just look back at what we read. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? They were neglecting their relationship with God. We have all been there, haven't we? We've all neglected our relationship before, right? No? Just me? This is awkward. All right. Maybe we were just so focused on our own lives and what we were doing here on earth 
that we pushed our relationship with God to the side. During that time period in your life, were you satisfied? Probably not. Were you thriving in your life? Again, probably not. And the people of Jerusalem weren't either. Look back at verse 6 for me. It says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. All the hard work these people have, and look at the results. They never had their fill. No one is warm. And people who earn money put them into bags with holes. You know, I think we can all can relate to that last one pretty good. Uh, you know, our paychecks are spent before we get them, but I think that's a whole different sermon. You know, it is very clear what is happening here. God has not blessed their crops because of their preference for personal comfort over the rebuilding of the temple. Since they are doing it without God, they are not getting God's blessing, right? Since they are relying on themselves and ignoring their relationship with the Father, all of their hard work is only leading them to frustration. But luckily, this isn't where it ends for the people of Jerusalem, because in verse 7, the Lord of hosts tells them to consider their ways. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Our relationship with the Lord has to come first, right? We can't put anything in front of our relationship with God, not our cars, not our house, not our kids, not our spouse. God has to come first. Oswald Chambers said it really well and really eloquently when he said, it must be God first, God second, and God third. Amen? Luckily for us, Haggai shows us that it is never too late to put God first and to start being obedient to him. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtan, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. This is really good news for us, is it not? If we aren't working on our relationship with God, if we aren't pursuing our relationship with the Lord, this is wonderful, wonderful news. You can start right now. See, God loves you. Jesus loves you. The Holy Spirit, who we tend to ignore as Baptists, loves us, loves, us, loves you. And they want nothing more than to be in relationship with you. See, Romans 8.26 says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Even if you feel you're at your worst right now, if life has driven you down to your knees, the Holy Spirit is helping you. He is interceding for you. And Jesus, he loves you. In the book of Luke, Jesus gives us the parable of the prodigal son. And in those verses, it says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the, his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property into reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. It has to be exhausting doing life outside of Jesus, right? You and you alone are the only one trying to carry all of life's burdens on your back. Most people think outside of Christ think they're, they're too scared to come back to Jesus because they think they're coming back with some repercussions, right? There's going to be some punishment. They think that they're going to come home to a butt whooping instead of a hug, but that's not the case. See, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 tells us, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then let's jump back to Haggai and look how the Lord, our Father, treats his people. Look how God responds to his people when they have gone back to him and they become obedient to him. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. When the people turn back to God, when we turn back to God, God begins to do a work on us. The Lord stirred up their spirit, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. They became obedient. Once they became obedient, the Lord does a work on them, and they get to work to glorify the Lord. And this brings me to my second truth, and that is the book of Haggai reveals the importance of working for God's glory. Verse 8 tells us, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. We work so that God may be glorified and take pleasure in it, right? Since the beginning, man has been put to work to bring glory and pleasure to God. All the way back in Genesis, Genesis 2.15 tells us the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, we were only formed like eight verses ago. All right, so man gets created and boom, get to work. All right, so we are put to work. See, work isn't a punishment. We think of work as a punishment nowadays. Work's not a punishment. Work is a blessing from God. We are put on this earth to work it and to keep it, and boy, did we mess that up fast, quick, and in a hurry. But our work must be for the glory of God, not the glory of ourselves. Haggai starts off by comparing the temple with the temple that Solomon built. Why would he do that? Why would he compare this new temple to the one Solomon built? There would be no comparison. How would that be motivating? Solomon's temple was an awesome sight. And it has to be that God doesn't want them to be motivated by wrong reasons, such as pride. If they were out to set a Guinness World Book of Records temple, that would have been motivation all in itself. 
but they would have been building the temple for themselves in their own glory and not for God. But this was not an option because they did not have those kinds of resources. This was a group of people who had just returned from exile and they had very little wealth. Especially since we know that God has been causing a drought and probably other disciplinary actions. So he asked how many of them remembered the former temple. It's been 70 years, so there's only, you know, not very many of them left, right? Only the ones over 80 remembered barely. There would have been 10. So what would they have said? This temple ain't nothing like Solomon's temple, right? That would have humbled them. That wouldn't have been a very encouraging word to them. So Haggai says in verse 4, Take courage, all you people of the land. He is about to tell them why they should take courage. But first he has to tell them what not to base their courage on. And that is comparison is wrong. We need to just do our best with the talents and resources we have and not compare ourselves or our fruit to others. When I think about some of the men and women in this church, who can quote scripture like the back of their hand, that have an uncanny ability with languages, that have such theological depth, man, I can feel pretty inadequate and want to give up and think I'll never be a good teacher or as good a Christian or even as good as pastor as some of, some of y'all have met through my time here at Ocean Way. But I just have to remember that I need to put God first and be faithful and do my best and God will use me. He glorifies in weakness because it glorifies him when all of us normal people accomplish great things. Amen? Amen. Let's go back to the phrase, take courage, though. If their motivation is not the fact that they're going to build an awesome, awesome temple, then what is the motivation? What brings them courage? And it can be found in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 of Haggai. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For I am with you. This phrase goes back to Exodus 19, 4 through 6, and Isaiah 63, 11 through 14. In those passages, you have God promising Moses that he will be in the midst of the Israelites. The Isaiah passage says it was the spirit of God in their midst that protected and provided for them. What did God do before Nebuchadnezzar came in to take over Jerusalem? The Lord of hosts left the temple, right? When Israel goes into captivity, the Lord asks, where's the Holy Spirit now? But now God is back and the presence of the Lord should give them courage. Thus he says in verse 5, do not fear what is the secret to doing the work of God? It is the presence of God. It is the spirit of God. This is the same motivation we have in the New Testament. In Matthew 28, 20, when uh, Jesus gives us the Great Commission, he says, make disciples of all nations, for I am with you to the end of the age. This is the same principle we see in Romans 7 and 8, where Paul talks about failure to do the work of God in chapter 7 because he is trying to do it on his own power. But in chapter 8, he succeeds because he draws the Spirit's power. A.W. Tozer once said, and this uh, quote will be on the screen for you, says, the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plans of God for his people. And this quote brings me to my third and final truth, and this 
This truth has some sub-truths, so be prepared. All right, so the book of Haggai emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Uh, Look at Haggai 2, verses 20 through 23 for me. And it says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So God has a definite plan for history. We see that through these verses. Note the repetition of the first personal pronoun, I. I am about to shake the heavens of the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. I will take you, Zerubbabel. I will make you like a signet ring. I have chosen, declares the Lord of hosts. You kind of get the impression that God has an idea about what he is going to do. See, history isn't just careening out of control with God desperately trying to grab the reins. All right? The sovereignty of God controls all the events of history for his purpose. He declares this through Isaiah. And in 1424 in Isaiah, he says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. In Isaiah 46, 8 through 11, he says, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declares the end uh, from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. You know, as you know, there are many Christians today who effectively deny God's sovereignty over man's will. There's a popular Bible teacher even, uh, who even has a message he calls the sovereignty of man. That is a blasphemous title. Scripture affirms that people make choices for which they are responsible, but also affirms that over and above the choices that we make is the sovereign purpose of God. His ultimate purpose is that we will be glorified. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. We have the choice of either cooperating with that purpose, in which case we will be blessed, or fighting against it, in which case we will not in any way thwart it, but he will be glorified in our judgment. And then my second sub-note is God is mighty to accomplish his plan. Our text does not contain any conditions God does not say, I hope to be able to make the, or excuse me, I hope to be able to shake the heavens and the earth. But it depends on how men will respond with their free will. I would like to take you, Zerubbabel, if you're willing, and make you my signet ring. I sure hope that you may say yes. God is quite absolute in declaring what he will do in the future to accomplish his plan. Zerubbabel easily could have said, but Lord, We Jews have returned to the land, are few in number. We have no king, no army, 
no weapons to use in our defense. We're surrounded by hostile and powerful nations, and we're subject to the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth. How can we prevail? But clearly God's ability to accomplish his sovereign purpose does not depend on the puny resources of his people, but on his power and might. Amen? The, the Bible is loaded with stories of how God delights to overthrow powerful kingdoms that dare to exalt themselves over his weak, vulnerable, chosen people. He is the God who brought the plagues on the mighty Egyptians and drowned their king and his army in the Red Sea. He toppled the walls of Jericho. He used Joshua and Caleb who trusted him to conquer the fearsome giants in the land. He delivered the horde of Midian into the hands of Gideon with a mere 300 people. He failed Goliath and put the Philistines to flight at the hands of a teenage shepherd named David. We serve a very big God. He repeatedly declares in his word, as Jeremiah put it, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing is too difficult for you. And finally, or excuse me, God's plan centers on the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot correctly understand our text unless we see that Zerubbabel is a type of Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center and final goal of what God is doing in human history. All of the Old Testament points ahead to Jesus Christ. God's promises to Abraham and to David fulfill, find their fulfillment in Jesus. All of the New Testament centers on the person and the work of Jesus. Right? As Luke records on, of Jesus after his resurrection, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Richard Wolfe once said, Zerubbabel is a type of Jesus, the true servant of God and God's signet ring. All that has validity, validity in God's eyes bearing the seal, the stamp of his approval, comes to us through Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel led Israel out of the Babylonian exile, and Christ delivered them from the bondage of sin. Zerubbabel built the temple of God, and Christ is building the spiritual temple, the church, right? Christ is the signet ring in and through whom all divine purposes are sealed. After the final shaking of the nations, we shall receive a kingdom that cannot be moved, and all nations shall walk in the light of God, and he shall be all in all. It is important to affirm that Zerubbabel is a type of Jesus because these promises were not filled in Zerubbabel's lifetime. He never ruled on a throne over Israel. He didn't live to see the thrones of kingdoms overthrown. He didn't see his name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That points to the last thing about God's plan in history. And that's God's timing for fulfilling his plan is different than our timing. In Haggai 2.6, it says, The Lord says, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. Obviously, uh, Haggai 2, 21 and 22 obviously refer to the same shaking, um, which God said would take place in a little while. Although there have been some partial fulfillments of that shaking of the nations when Persia, Greece, and Rome were overthrown, the final fulfillment is still future in our day. Clearly, God's idea of a little while does not coincide with our idea of a little while, right? As Peter points out to us, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, 
and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But that little while is coming. Christ is coming back, and when he does, all his promises will be fulfilled. God is in complete control of this world. Do not be mistaken. All right? Um, I want to end this with um, Brother Dave, Pastor Mike, and I in our discipleship group. Uh, we just finished a book called uh, Knowledge of the Holy. And in this, uh, one of the chapters, he talks about the sovereignty of God. And he gives a really good in illustration on the sovereignty of God. And I want to share that illustration with you this morning. And if you ever get the chance, I, I would highly recommend you pick up the knowledge of the holy and read it yourselves. But A.W. Tozer writes, An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of sovereignty. On board the liner are several scores of passengers. These are not, they are not in chains. Neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, talk, all together as a pleasure. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they do not contradict each other. So it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of those eternal purposes which he proposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. We do not know all that is included in these purposes, but enough has been disclosed to furnish us with a broad outline of things to come and to give us good hope and firm assurance of future well-being. So we have a choice. While God moves closer and closer to fulfilling his word, we can either be obedient and get to work for his glory, or we can try to do things on our own and see how far that gets us. I think the answer is pretty obvious. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, just thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for showing us how you are sovereign over all things. That it is you and you alone, Lord, that rules this world, that everything happens through you. Father, I ask if there's anyone that does not know you or is not in a relationship with you, Lord, that they come and take courage in you and fear not, that there is no condemnation found in you, Jesus. Just thank you for this opportunity to spread your word. Just be with the men and women in your church. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain 